0: Welcome to the Florence Guild podcast, a collection of conversations with business and cultural leaders delivering insight into future approaches to business and life. Through conversations in an array of styles, from salon talks to lifestyle events, through to intimate facilitated lunches and dinners, Florence Guild promotes encounters, satiates curiosity and allows insight into future approaches to business and life following Florence Guild, conversation was recorded live at Work Club Sydney, Australia's most forward-thinking workspace. This episode's conversation is about how Australia could lead the world in fintech. London, Singapore, New York, these are markets people think of when they think fintech. They are rich in talent, have loads of capital, and are homes to some of the world's biggest financial institutions. However, for a tiny nation of 23 million, Australia has a strong case to be the world-leading fintech market. Let's listen to Fintech Australia's CEO, Danielle Sito talk through the evolution of Australia's fintech industry and share insights into Australia's unique fintech strengths. Danielle joined Fintech Australia from Fairfax Media, where she was the industry head of banking and finance. Prior to this, she held management roles at leading media brands such as News Limited and Fox Sports. Danielle holds an MBA executive and a Bachelor of Digital Media from UNSW. How Australia could lead the world in fintech? A Florence Guild conversation with Danielle Citeau.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, and thank you very much for making the time. I know lunchtime for an entrepreneur is super precious. So I appreciate you being here. Just so I can get a sense of who's in the room. How many of you guys are actually either founders or thinking about founding a company? Yeah, cool, quite a fair few, more than normal. Um, and how many of you guys are actually from like the corporate sector, potentially looking at engaging with oh, so, you Oh, know, so kind of both thing, kind of thing. Okay, cool. Um, and just so I can pick on a few people, like what sort of things are you interested in hearing in about? Like just so I can make sure that we're hitting the brief. And if I'm are not talking about stuff that you wanted to, we can blame them. But <laughs> so, what sort of things would you like to hear about?
0: I, I suppose I'm, try, I'm trying to understand what uh, what the trends are in fintech. Yep. What, what areas are uh, yep. you know, developing?
1: Uh-huh. Okay.
0: Um, I work a bit with insurance companies, banks. Yep. Uh, Health insurers, that sort of stuff. Yep. So they're always trying to figure out where things are so Isn't everybody? Trend, trend.
1: Cool. Okay. Um, and you as well. What were you interested in finding out? Yes. Uh, I anticipate that fintechs are going to have a massive disruptive effect, which is going to affect all industries. Yes. So that's mm-hmm. Okay. Thinking of Great. Sure. Um, Okay, that's a good sense. Um, So yes, my name's Danielle. I'm the CEO of FinTech Australia. We represent some 170 FinTech companies across the country uh, and they span a huge variety of different industry subsectors. So you have everybody from payments, lending. In fact, we have one of our members here, Cameron Pullman from OnDeck, Uh, welcome. And we also have, uh, it might be blockchain, digital currencies, um, peer-to-peer lenders, um, crowdfunding companies, doing really big piece in, in open banking, data, aggregators, you name it, we've got it. Um, so it means that we get visibility into a very broad swathe of different business models, lots of different regulatory concerns. Um, And our job is really to sort of sit at this nexus of industry between the government and regulators, the industry, um, as well as trying to understand what the challenges are that they're facing so we can figure out ways to work together to try and smooth out um, that sort of pathway to success. Because when you think about it, fintech is really a numbers game. In fact, all startup is a numbers game. You guys who are entrepreneurs in in the room know it. You know, it's all about taking calculated risk and the more we can do to reduce those sort of, whether it's regulatory barriers or external impediments to growth, the more the numbers come stacked in your favor, which means we can grow successful businesses that you know, eventually result in economic growth, jobs, partnerships, you know, better outcomes, whether it's for the FinTech or for the bank that's actually partnering with the FinTech or for the government when it comes to things like reduced cost of financial services, which obviously then leads to better consumer outcomes. So these are all the kind of objectives that everybody has in mind. And absolutely, there are certainly some companies that are very disruptive, but certainly there are a lot of companies that we see as very additive or what we might call sustaining innovations. Those ones that are looking to potentially partner with a lot of financial services providers to help them to do something more cheaply, more cost effectively or in a more tailored way for a, uh, a financial service. Um, so. To give you a bit of a sense, we've been around for around about a year, or maybe just a little longer than that, a year and sort of three, four months, um, as as um, you know, sorry, I can't remember her name, but uh, as she's mentioned, we are doing Intersect Festival in a couple of weeks in Melbourne, which is the second iteration of our uh, huge sort of annual summit, Collab Collide, which is the punctuation at the end of that, so definitely check that out. Um, but we do tend to explore a lot of interesting themes, and I think I'll sort of talk a little bit about that because, you know, speaking about Australia's potential um, as a global, a world leading fintech hub, which it's certainly starting to become recognised as being one. A lot of it actually comes down to this concept of intersect or intersections. So what is it that the Australian fintech industry is known for? It's, it's known for being an industry uh, or actually a market that is geographically situated at the sort of nexus point of east and west. We have this super kind of diverse population, multiculturally, I, mean, I myself, I'm a migrant, um, you know, but I know a lot of other fintech founders and a lot of other participants and a lot of consumers are from all sorts of different diverse backgrounds. And when you think about the fact that financial services is you know, one of Australia's, in fact, I think it is the largest uh, industry contributor to Australia's GDP, some 10% of the economy. The interesting thing is that one of, I think it's either the second or third largest is actually education. And so when you think about that, the fact that a lot of people actually come to Australia, they study, they get their degrees, they meet lots of people and then suddenly they say, well, actually I wanna give back to the country that I've done my education in. Uh, I might take my first steps in my career to work with a company and think about what I might want to do next. They gain all sorts of contacts and experiences and then when they eventually go back home, whether it's to China or to the United States, they take those contacts with them. And, you know, I think it's a potential neglected opportunity for us to really think about the fact that that's actually a tremendous resource when we're thinking about expanding our businesses. But I'll come back to that a little bit later. So to set the scene, Australia really has had this remarkable sort of 18 months in the financial services sector, starting from obviously the sort of very well championed innovation agenda that was launched by Malcolm Turnbull. And Scott Morrison, the federal treasurer, also kind of really got the fintech bug probably around about 18 months ago, where he uh, spent a little bit of time talking to a number of different community members and said, well, you know, I'm hearing you say that the, you know Australia is falling behind when it comes to fintech policy give me your top five priorities and let's see what we can do. We're looking at what's happening over in the United Kingdom, where Her Majesty's Treasury is backing the fintech industry there, launching all sorts of policy directives around e-payments and open banking. Like, what should we in Australia do to help make uh, sure that we don't potentially secede, you know, this tremendous amount of financial services capability to uh, some of our near neighbours who are investing incredibly when it comes to the fintech sector? So you look at people like Singapore and Hong Kong and China and the governments are pouring billions of dollars into their fintech sector. How are we supposed to compete? So we spent a bit of time as a community coming together and figuring out this sort of uh, paper that we kind of brought to government and said, well, here are our top priorities. And we're actually seeing this sort of rollout of a number of those different things. And, you know, these things take time. Um, You know, you've got to sort of dot all the I's and cross all the T's, but you know when it comes to legislation and policy, you've got to think about the investors, investor protection, retail investors, consumers, the different sort of perspectives of the participants in the industry. So it's taken a while, but for example, um, you know, we listed crowdfunding. And as you all know the crowdfunding legislation has now come into effect uh, for public companies we're in the process of getting the private company legislation through the Parliament now and you know hopefully within the next sort of six nine months we should actually begin to see you know a really good opportunity for startups to actually raise capital through a new sort of you know c- uh, crowdfunding regime um, we talked about open banking as that being this tremendous opportunity for uh, unlocking the power that is inherent in consumer information, putting that into the consumer's hands so that they could actually use that information and to direct institutions to share their held information with other third parties if they chose to obtain benefits for themselves. And that's a project that's been kind of, you know, was given a vast amount of interrogation as part of the Productivity Commission's inquiry into data availability and use, which we contributed two rather lengthy submissions to. Um, but also in the announcement from the federal government uh, in the budget earlier this year to say that they would actually move toward an open banking regime in 2018 and the launch of the inquiry uh, which has started in August and will conclude in December about how we actually go about implementing an open banking regime which we've just also contributed a submission to as well. And so all of this is kind of off the back of the fact that as you look at the numbers, all of this work that we're doing, implementing a regulatory sandbox, helping ASIC to understand, uh, you know, this new and nascent area of, you know, initial coin offerings and how, you know, businesses might need to actually operate within that. Um, you know, looking at ways that we can work with regulators to understand what's happening in peer-to-peer lending or balance sheet lending, and say, you know, how can you support innovation in this sector? without hamstringing it and over-regulating it so that you're actually hampering its growth and still being able to protect the consumers that we serve. And that's a very, very sort of fine and delicate line that the regulators need to balance and that the industry hopes to help them to balance as well. And some of the outputs we're starting to see, I mean, it's actually really tremendous news for Australia. I think there's been a couple of interesting reports that have been released lately. Um, So, you know, we talked about the fact that Australia has uh, 10% of its GDP, contributed as financial services, employs 450,000 people in the sector. Well, the fintech industry now represents some 10,000 people. Um, It's no longer a small industry, it represents about 16% um, of the startup sector in Australia, so it's the largest one by a little margin. Um, We've seen venture capital increase tremendously from some 450 million invested in the sector in 2014 to I think it was close to 700 million last year and I think it'll break that mark uh, again this year so you know almost 250 percent growth at a time when the rest of the world is actually going backward by about 50 percent in terms of fintech investment. Um, Other meaningful sort of trends that we're seeing in the area include things like you know the number of co-working spaces dedicated to fintech, the number of venture capital firms dedicated to fintech, the increasing presence of international investors investing in Australian fintech companies. We've had two Australian companies, one was Airwallex and the other was Hyperanna that received investments from Sequoia, China, uh, and as well as WePay. Um, So very interesting signals to see the sort of interconnectedness of the fintech industry in Australia with some of its nearest neighbours. And then of course, just a couple of weeks ago was the second annual Alternative Finance Benchmarking Report which showed that Australia had actually leapfrogged uh, Japan to be the second largest alternative finance sector in the Asia-Pacific region, only to China. Um, And, you know, China basically represents, I think it's close to 80 percent of the world's alternative finance sector, so kind of a behemoth, very difficult to catch. But you think about the fact that we have tremendous balance sheet lenders or, you know, business lending community, um, you know, so players like OnDeck or, you know, others like Prosper, Moola, SpotCap, making really great headway from the intense demand from the small business sector for lending. and you can really start to see why, you know, Australia's alternative finance sector, which covers all these uh, business models from, you know, balance sheet lending, peer-to-peer lending, and crowdfunding, um, with some $610 million US uh, lent in the last, or volumes in the last sort of 12 months, it's, it's really tremendous growth for Australia. So coming back to some of the hallmarks of the industry, Australia has an extremely well-regulated fintech environment. Um, ASIC and APRA and uh, the RBA, the three sort of tri-peaked regulatory system we have, very well regarded internationally as forward-thinking but very balanced uh, regulators who are very used to or have had a long history of regulating the financial services sector and think about the fact that Australia has, has not had a recession for some 25, 26 years. Um, We have had a financial services sector that has weathered the GFC. Um, So of, of course, internationally, a lot of regulators are actually looking to ASIC and saying, well ASIC, how is it that you are doing things differently in terms of how you're regulating the financial services sector and now the FinTech sector that we can potentially learn from? And so in terms of the trends, one of the things we're sort of seeing is this sort of move to start to actually unify a lot of FinTech regulatory policy across the world and that kind of regulatory unification is important because when you're a FinTech company you're trying to scale internationally. The biggest cost you will probably have apart from staff is in compliance. So the time spent understanding as you move from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, how you have to localize your products and services to make sure that you're meeting the regulatory requirements within that different jurisdiction. And so if you can kind of see where regulators start to have conversations about, you know, China, what are you doing in this space? And, you know, Indonesia, how are you approaching approaching e-payments? Hong Kong, how are you starting to look at this ICO problem? You end up with situations where the regulators all start to unify toward different areas. And one area that I think is particularly exciting in that space is actually in digital financial service, uh, sorry, digital advice. So thinking about the fact that Australia's superannuation sector uh, or pension sector is, I think, it's like the sixth largest in the world, which, when you think about the fact that we're a country of 23 million people, is crazy, um, given that the ones ahead of us are like, you know, Canada, the United States, Japan. Um, So it's tremendous to see that we have such depth and experience and a long history of mandatory contributions. And that's actually an area where, for example, the UK is starting to implement uh, a mandatory contribution scheme. You have Japan that is actually also starting to look at ways to hand uh, control of managing your own personal finances back to the end consumer because they're stressed about the fact that you know pension funds in Japan are not growing as much as they could be. They've got an aging population. And there's a whole bunch of people who are sort of like around our age who are concerned that you know all of their pension funds are now going to be paying for all these old people and they'll see none of it in the end. So, you know, this whole self-managed super fund concept is starting to come online there in Japan as well, which is, you know, they're now looking at Australia and saying, well, you've been operating a self-managed super fund regulatory framework for a couple of years now. What have you got to tell us about how it works? And then, of course, you look at the Dodd-Frank ruling over in the United States that talks about fiduciary advisors. Again, we don't have that concept of, you know, fiduciary versus non-fiduciary in Australia. You're a financial advisor or you're not. So you know you start to see this sort of you know, harmonization of regulation uh, throughout, the country, uh, throughout the countries. And you know, from the fact that I think by count ASIC has more collaborative regulatory agreements than any other regulator worldwide in the fintech space um, really sort of shows just how well regarded Australia is when it comes to you know, regulatory policy. And that actually then leads to kind of the other area that's very interesting and emerging within sort of what we consider the fintech sector Um, You know, talking about things like reg tech or regulatory technologies. So the fact that we have such a regulated sector means that inevitably the cost for compliance is super high. And there's a lot of costs sunk into that into really manual processes, things that require triple stamping of paper, passing from one person to the other, risk and compliance teams saying this needs to be checked for anti-money laundering and KYC um, or know your customer. And so we've got a lot of very interesting businesses that are using data technologies to actually now automate a lot of those functions, which is where you're starting to see this new kind of regulatory technology sub-industry within FinTech take off. And that level of compliance is super, super linked to lots of other industries. I mean, compliance is a word that's not unique to financial services. Um and Australia has got a number of other key industries that require a lot of other compliance sort of hurdles. So whether it's the medical sector or it might actually even be the agricultural sector, you know, we have very, very high levels of regulation in there. And so you're starting to see this industry of reg tech companies that have started in financial services because the, you know, the margins and the cost there were always the highest, and so they're saying, well, let's go in there and see if we can, you know, take some of that cost out and therefore kind of, you know, build a business off that and are starting to now say, well, I've solved the problem within financial services. How can I now broaden that into other industry verticals using similar types of technologies and you know, what we'd call kind of industry adjacencies? And again, that's an area which I think, coming back to that point I made at the beginning about intersections, is an area that Australia is increasingly becoming very well known for because you know, we're looking at how financial services intersects with the medical sector. Or it might intersect with the agricultural sector and it's within all these different intersections that becomes very very interesting for Australia particularly as you look at it within the context of the Asia-Pacific region because if you think about Singapore you think about Hong Kong their traditional financial services hub financial services makes up a huge amount the big overwhelming majority of their GDP versus in Australia it's quite distributed And so it's not going to make sense for Australia to compete on pure financial services against those types of players. We need to be finding ways that we can actually leverage the experience we're building in financial services technologies and leveraging them into other industry verticals where we can get that double kicker of efficiency and GDP growth. So there are some very interesting businesses that are actually starting to leverage and kind of coming back to your points about disruptive technology, um, applications like the blockchain, which, you know, started life in financial services and increasingly as banks look into it, they're starting to appreciate that for high volume, high value, sorry, for high volume, low value transactions. The blockchain is not a scalable solution, or at least with the current technologies, it's not a cost effective solution for doing all the things they want. So they're saying, well, actually, blockchain tends to look really, really good for things that have tons of paperwork and require a very, very large amount of trust to, or in order to move really, really large amounts of money. And if you look across areas where that tends to happen, you have two sort of key areas, which you know, you're now starting to see blockchain companies focus into. And that's in international remittances, because again, you know, particularly for the um, large institutions, you know, the, the necessity of actually having huge amounts of money in escrow is very difficult and costly. Um, and the other area is actually in trade, So, trade finance and trade settlements, so uh, supply chain management. And again, coming back to this concept of intersections, you think about Australia in terms of an exporter of commodities like, um, you know, it might be oil, gas, um, or even sort of minerals like, um, you know, coal or uh, potash or gold, whatever it is, Um, or even in terms of things like beef exports. We now have some really interesting blockchain companies that started off targeting financial services applications, Mm -hmm. but have now shifted their focus to things like trade settlement and are looking at how they're actually using and applying the blockchain to capture data and settle transactions as they move commodities through a supply chain. So I was actually up in Queensland a couple of weeks ago and looking at a company that was actually doing kind of like the blockchain of beef. And you know, again, coming back to this notion of intersections. When you have the agricultural sector that's doing a whole bunch of work and things like Internet of Things and doing things around sensor deployment and how you actually link all of that with automated smart contracts that enable you to pay things automatically once it passes from thing to thing. Um, All of that stuff starts to make sense in an Australian context, which again kind of looks at how we leverage the core capabilities we have across multiple industry verticals and puts them together to develop specialised niche applications. So these are sort of areas that we're looking at when it comes to that intersection. Again, coming back to, you know, our geographic position between East and West and coming back to the intersection of financial services with lots of other sort of industry verticals. So those are sort of two areas that I see um, as being quite interesting and disruptive. Um, You know, this space of ICOs, I think a lot of people are very interested in what's been happening there. Um, Given the fact that Australia has just rolled out this really interesting and very well researched and thought through crowdfunding regime. It's very interesting to see how we then sort of shift our focus and attention and look at ways in which we can kind of leverage that work into what's actually happening in the ICO space. And again, coming back to sort of the collaborative nature of how we engage with the regulatory community both domestically and internationally. You know, we spent a lot of time, both ASIC and FinTech Australia, talking to other industry bodies through the world. ASIC spent time talking to all sorts of jurisdictions about the different ways in which they were approaching the problem of ICOs and the guidance we sort of gave to ASIC when we said, you know, of course you we're not going to tell you how you release your guidance, but please can you ensure that, you know, you're not killing the industry before it even starts by overhandedly regulating things you know it'd be useful for you to just provide clarification about you know what sorts of regimes might apply what sorts of things wouldn't apply and if you're thinking about taking advantage of these what are the different regulatory sort of uh, or license type arrangements that you may need to consider as you're actually undertaking your raise through that particular approach and you'll see the guidance that they've released. Um, a lot of companies have actually said, yes, that's actually something we can work with. It's a really good pointer for where we're going. And I think you'll see a couple of really interesting um, deployments uh, of ICOs in spaces that really harness the best of blockchain applications as a fundraising mechanism and staying within the regulatory guidelines. So I'm sure some of you probably would have heard about Power Ledger. really good example of a company that um, blockchain-based peer-to-peer energy trading uh, through the grid. Um, You know, there's another one that's coming up soon, I think called Solara uh, or Solaris. Um, You know, again, sort of leveraging mobile phone chip technology to actually enable peer-to-peer trading off um, uh, solar panels. So again, coming back to this thing about the intersections, internet of things, um, financial services technologies and blockchain um, with renewable energy. So other areas that Australia can leverage distinct strengths and the intersections of all sorts of these different technologies to then commercialize that and actually bolster not only the things that we're good at here as an industry, but then how we're actually exporting those technologies to the rest of the world. So I don't know how we are for time, because I could honestly just talk about that sort of stuff forever, but I thought I might just pause there to see whether or not there's anything else in particular that anyone wanted me to raise. Can, sure. can I ask you, um, do,
0: do you actually see that there's much difference between fintech and legal tech or tech I mean, tech? Because as you say, with all of the, the crossovers, mm-hmm. it's, it's almost like, I mean, the, the issues that are uh, compliance based, they're not really fint- fintech, they're really legal tech, yep. uh, but they're important to both and to yep. many industries. And
1: yeah, so I do, and it really depends mm. on which of the different fintech subsectors. So actually, an area that I haven't touched on that you've just reminded me, so thank you, I probably should, um, is the area of neobanking. So that is very much a core fintech service. Um, so an interesting development we also had as part of the most recent federal budget was a number of different initiatives to reduce the barriers to entry for, for new digital challenger banks. Something that's happening quite a lot in the UK. In fact, we have both Starling and uh, Adam Bank founders coming to speak at the Intersect Festival. But, um, you know, traditionally in Australia, like before you even were able to use the word bank in your name, you had to have over 50 million in capital reserve. Um, there were all sorts of blockers with respect to the um, percentage. And of course, this is all, you know, it's, it's, it's all fair, um, but, you know, blockers with respect to your, your capital holding requirements to comply with things like Basel III and IV. Um, but, you know, it really did mean that it was very difficult for companies to actually look at deploying new challenger banks because you needed to raise some 50 million in VC before you could even kind of get an entry stamp. So the government basically said, look, we're looking at a consultation now to announce a new type of licensing regime in conjunction with that, so that if you have a minimum of three million allocated capital, you can then operate with a restricted banking license um, that would allow you to have up to, I think it's up to 250,000 per individual consumer and an aggregate amount of two million proposed, which we think is too low. Um, but." that is an area for example where you know it really is about the absolute essence and core of financial services and how people are actually completely changing the fundamental way they're engaging with consumers and i'll give you two really nice examples that i've seen lately of companies that are starting to really play around with how people engage with traditional financial services Um, Everyone's always heard of Acorns and and Pocketbook and these sort of new apps that are very consumer-facing, allowing you to sort of, you know, whether it's roundups for saving or, you know, budgeting and, you know, moving your money around and getting that holistic view of your financial services. Another one that I've seen lately is called Finch, which is like a, a, I don't know how many of you guys know about Splitwise You know, it's that that sharing app where, you know, you go out for dinner with your friends and the bill comes to a hundred bucks and it's like, oh, I don't have any cash. So why don't we just, you know, I'll pay for it and then we can just split the rest. And, you know, the app allows you to very quickly divide. And, you know, if you've got, you know, your friends are all in the app, it just happens instantly. So, you know, that's a really good example. Finch is sort of built off a similar sort of premise to Splitwise where it's instant sort of settlement and payments between all you and all your friends, except when you sort of log into the app, the very first thing you're confronted with is this screen where you've actually got, um, you know, a couple of different tabs and it says, you know, here are all the transactionings that are happening within your little circle of friends. So you can see, oh, you know, my friend Simon's just paid my friend Eric five bucks for coffee. Oh, and Eric's just paid, you know, Ursula for another, for lunch. Then you have this other tab, which actually says everyone, And you can see transactions that are happening from, you know, you to you. Um, I have no idea who all these people are, but you can sort of see these little micro transactions. And it's a completely different way of thinking about social finance, where, you know, this kind of voyeuristic, I don't know, some people would claim it's millennial sort of banking, which I personally don't believe in. That's just straight voyeurism. My dad finds it it incredibly hilarious. Um, But, you know, this cold new way of engaging with people and you know they they've actually deployed the app it's got really strong traction amongst the university crowd um another interesting example is um, is revolut that i caught up with them recently is um, they're a neobank that actually has fantastic traction i think they've almost got a million customers already and uh, are pushing to get another couple of million but have deployed in the uk in in europe and are now sort of looking to launch here in australia And, you know, they're looking at uh, completely reimagining. They started off as kind of like a, a banking app that allowed you to do remittances and transfer, like a, it's more like a currency wallet. So that was their sort of minimum viable product where they said, like, you know, recharge your app with X amount of pounds. We'll allow you to instantly convert it into... Um, you know, Danish kroners or Australian dollars, or, you know, perhaps in future, maybe into Bitcoin or, you know, Zem if you're that way inclined. Um, and, you know, comes with sort of prepaid cards that you can then use to spend whatever place in whatever currency you've just converted at the spot rate. Um, and, you know, from there in the UK, starting to roll out other types of financial services. So, so you know, starting with these really niche applications but then starting to rebundle into things that actually then completely take over the relationship with someone over a financial services life cycle. Um, You know, there's some very interesting disruptions that are actually happening in that space as well. Does that kind of answer your question in a very long and roundabout way?
0: (laughs) Go some of it, yeah. Yeah,
1: okay. Any other parts that I didn't cover? What what, what specifically?
0: No, I was also saying, where where Mm. do you draw the line between what's legal tech and what's fintech? Mm. I mean, because, uh, uh, you know, is, is fintech we, you know, transactional is or is fintech, is this, as you, you sort of suggested, uh, also covering the, the compliance side of things, yep. where legal documents and, yeah. uh, and paperwork, etc., yeah. which is not really about the financial transactions, it's about yep. the legal
1: side. And look, we, we have a very broad church view of fintech. We, we, of course, we want to do that. Um, we don't necessarily discriminate between them. We just say, you know, fintech collectively is any of those businesses that are helping consumers to transact or do finance in a totally you know, with a, in a way that harnesses technology. And we kind of see RegTech as a subsector within that, particularly as it pertains to FinTech, though of course, you know, RegTech does have applications in all sorts of other areas. Um, another area that's pretty interesting is actually insurtech. you know, some questions as well as to whether you consider that broad FinTech. Um, we're actually gonna be launching the new InsureTech Australia Association under the auspices of FinTech Australia later this month. Um, But another area which has a lot of commonalities within financial services, um, you know, huge consumers of data, all about risk and pricing, um, you know, huge amounts of compliance volume, um, you know, sort of very, very similar concerns. So, uh, you know, that's another area that, you know, question mark as to whether or not you consider it fintech or not. But as far as we're concerned, it doesn't matter. Um, You know, it's completely changing the way people are actually interacting with this particular type of financial related product. And therefore, it's something that we sort of want to try and help to, you know, smooth out or, you know, support the development of new business models in a safe and secure way for consumers. And that actually, the insure tech area is another area that I think is going to be massively disrupted. When you sort of look at the broader trends of what's happening with the value chain from reinsurer to insurer to, and, you know, perhaps broker somewhere in the middle through to the end consumer, um, you know, that value chain is collapsing completely as, bro- as reinsurers suddenly realise that, you know, they can suddenly reach consumers with customised products at scale. So that entire chunk in the middle is completely irrelevant. Um, but also thinking about the shifts and trends of, you know, the availability of data, where people, you know, I think the partnership between Apple and, and Fitbit, um, or even just any of the medical insurers and Fitbit, where you know, if you walk a certain number of steps a day, then they'll give you a discount of your insurance premium because they're so, they're saying that you're becoming more healthy and therefore, you know, they can actually afford to give you back some of that uh, reduced premium because you're lower risk to them. Um, which becomes very interesting when you think about the fact that you know people are getting older. They're is more information about them than ever before as you start thinking about the fact that um, you know genetic testing suddenly makes it possible for you to know that you know you may end up with x or y disease and there's absolutely nothing you can do about it and suddenly if that information is in the hands of the insurer then they'll you're you you they will deem you unsure, uninsurable and so you know that also raises some very interesting questions about uh, you know financial exclusion whether there's financial discrimination but you know all things that the FinTech industry and the InsurTech industry are actually really looking towards because you know, there are ways to creatively solve those problems at very low cost through technology. Um, and it becomes then, you know, do we actually now start to completely shift around the insurance model to being you know, a safety net for anything that goes wrong to a service that actually helps you to ensure that whatever is coming can be mitigated or can be avoided altogether. So very different shift in dynamic from the availability of technology and data. So, yeah, another very interesting area that I've, I've spent a lot of time talking to people about. <laughs> cool. Sorry, very round. I'm, I appreciate I'm It's very, very roundabout, sort of meander through a lot of different things. And I usually have a presentation that I kind of s- keeps me stuck to schedule. But, um, yeah, it's just trying to work with what it is that you guys are interested in as well. So, yeah, more questions, please. Keep um, them coming. So,
0: just for your average sort of, kind of big tech startup, so mm-hmm. what are you finding the main ways you're helping? Is it kind of like everything, like finance, regulation or if it's got legs? So, what are you finding what works
1: and what doesn't work? Uh, as in, in what ways that FinTech Australia itself is yeah, helping, yeah. or? So how are
0: you helping some of the best FinTech companies out yep.
1: there now? Well, we do a number of different things and I think everybody is looking for different things. Um, I'd say that the majority of people pay us because we handle the regulatory side when many of them don't have the time to do so. And also it's much more compelling to have the united voice of an industry talking to a government rather than lots of different players individually trying to have a case because, you know, there is always going to be sort of the issue of agency. Uh, You know, people have always got agendas and the government's like, well, I don't want to hear about your agenda. I want to hear about the industry's agenda. Um, So we have a number of different policy working groups where, you know, from open banking to lending to digital advice and payments, uh, KYC, where we sort of band together and say, well, as an industry, what's our view? And we help to then sort of, you know, we're the ones that sit in the, meet- the five or six or ten meetings with government to sort of work it through, whilst the fintech companies are busy getting on with stuff.
0: Okay, so the fintech companies actually pay you to represent. Yeah, them we're
1: so a to get them off the ground. yes, we're a not-for-profit member body, so we're we're funded by membership fees. Okay. Um, right. Yes, but you know that's the policy is the number one thing. Uh, of course, we also do things where we, um, you know, we help support the PR. So we work very closely with Austrade. And in fact, we spent a lot of time with Austrade working on how we uh, revamp a lot of their internationalization strategies, um, because it was pretty clear they had a business model that was completely set up to service large enterprises where they were charging people per meeting, per hour. And it's like, that's not gonna work for a fintech company. Um, You know, these guys are scrapping.
0: So what stage are these fintech companies typically at when they engage? (laughs)
1: <laughs> we have people from across the spectrum, so we have people who are sort of founders only and in fact probably the majority of our yeah. members are founders only because that's the cheap entry rate, uh, two fifty bucks a year, um, but all the way through to businesses that are 30 40 fifth employees plus, so you know you're, you're on decks of the world who have quite a number of employees, yeah. uh, everyone to people like Stripe um, internationally, um, yodlee they obviously have thousands of employees across the world, yeah yep. yep. So it's a very, if you can imagine, like I spend about 40 to 50% of my time in meetings with government and I spend about 30% of the remainder, uh, or oh sorry, 30% of my time meeting and talking to members and trying to figure out how we land on a unified position. So do
0: many come to you and you
1: say, no, that's not a word, go away? No, it's not our job to pick and choose. Oh, yeah. Um... I mean, obviously, there are some times where they will actually ask me directly, you know, I'd love your feedback and I'll give it to them as best I can. But at the end of the day, it's not our job to pick and choose winners. Um, You know, if people come to us and say, we have an idea, we'd love your support to help promote it with PR, um, we'll say, sure, send us the press release and we'll support you with some social media presence. Or we also do a lot of work to actually advocate uh, both domestically and internationally. So pulling together kind of like, you know, might be this, you know, we're, we're working, the FinTech census is a good example. It's a research piece where we survey the industry and talk about the general considerations of the industry. It's a policy platform document. But aside from that, we also have, you know, we're working on a, a lending research report at the moment that sort of talks about the challenges of the business lending sector and ways in which the industry stakeholders can understand more of the context without speaking in sort of broad sweeping statements. Um, you know, if we've got like, delegations internationally with Austrade and we know that you know, four or five of our members are going, we will advance PR, the work that they're doing, so that you know, we help them obtain, uh, whether it might be interviews with media organisations in that market, um, things like that.
0: So what's the top level of membership cost? To-
1: the very top level for fintech startups, so if you're over 30 employees, is 10,000 okay. a year. And at that level we, there's obviously other things like you know speaking opportunities within the summit and uh, invitations to special things at no cost um, We also tend to you know and we are developing that out because you know bearing in mind, we're a team of like three and a half people uh, <laughs> But, um, you know, and, and fairly young organisations. So always figuring out how we best service those. But a lot of the time, you know, especially when it comes to the biggest members, they're at that stage where actually for them it's about industry leadership and giving back to the community. So we tend to give them the opportunity to, you know, they, a lot of them are the ones that are like the co-leads of the working groups. So they um, help to formulate, formulate the position. And when we're talking to the media or to the government, they're the ones that come with me to the meetings because I can't do everything myself. And also like, I'm not an expert. They're the ones at the coal face. So it's far you know I can say oh yeah we don't want to do this because such and such is it's going to be challenging for the for the companies to execute that but it's so much more compelling when the companies like last week I had a customer and we did this and that didn't work for them and the consumer was really hurt by it you know you can really bring that to light um, by talking about the actual war stories that the community are facing so yeah that's it's a model that we find works well Any other questions so, Yes yeah. so
0: you mentioned uh, registry environment having a lot of
1: Having what, sorry? Enabler, yes.
0: Or, or,
1: or, or. Yes. Um,
0: what, what are your top three regular discussions that are underway at the moment and why you're focusing
1: Okay, so probably the biggest one is open financial data. Um, and that's that's because it touches everybody. The notion that the fintech industry and the financial services sector as a whole is powered almost entirely on data. Um, And the consumer's ability to manipulate it, use it, uh, its it's ability to unlock economic outcomes is tremendous. I find the notion of ownership to be a red herring. Um, Really, it's actually, it is getting into privacy, but actually the more accurate description is who has control to do what. So, you know, someone may own the information, but that doesn't matter so long as someone has the right to direct that information be delivered from one place to another. So long as you have that control, that's the important part. So we talk about ownership with respect to, so let's just take, for example, bank transaction data. Who owns that? Big question mark. It's the consumer's relationship with the bank that generates the transaction information. Is it the consumer's data or or is it the organization's data? Does it matter? Because what's important is that either the consumer or the institution has the ability to do things with that data. They have the control over the data to use it in ways that they wish. So that's why I think ownership is a little bit of a red herring on that one. But the other issue that's related to open banking that I would say is the biggest, the second biggest area is uh, digital identity and electronic know your customer. Uh, That's a huge area as well. And again, an area that affects everybody. Um, and we're seeing some really interesting initiatives from other governments internationally. When you look at, oh, here's a great a couple of great examples. First of all, Singapore. The regulator there has basically said to the banks, let's fix this problem. We have this unified Singaporean national identity. Uh, you guys can leverage this for your KYC reliance. We're gonna save everybody in the industry thousands of dollars in compliance costs, the consumers will have it so much easier because they can use their government accredited digital identity to authenticate for financial services. Now, challenge is that's never going to work in Australia. Australians don't view things like Australia cards uh, in a very nice way. I mean, I'm sure that many of you have seen all of this sort of hoo ha at the moment um, about biometric identity and the fact that the government is rolling out this digital identity platform um, that uses uh, facial recognition software as part of the verification. Yeah, and so people are saying you know they talk about the passport, the passport and the driver's license, and they say you know they talk to you a little bit about the fact that of course you want to use that when you're entering the country, you may want to use that when you're applying for a home loan or even for a rental tenancy, but of course everyone always jumps to that use case that says oh but I'll be walking in a crowd and you know ASIO will spot me and you know want to sort of find me for something that I'm doing like there's a very big spectrum between there and there, so you know, those sorts of issues are very interesting, but I mean to give you a sense. Of how powerful it can be think about what's happening in india at the moment where you had a country with a billion people um, who were oh, it's a, what billion is 600 million people who were yeah 600 million people who like of which i think 60 or 70 percent of individuals were unbanked and in somewhere like 20, to 2015, the government decided to launch Aadhaar, which is the platform they use for a digital, or, or you know, a unified Indian digital identity. Uh, they basically mandated that if you wanted to obtain a government service, um, there's a lot of government handouts in India, you needed to get an Aadhaar number. And to this date, they now have something like 95% of Indians now with an Aadhaar number because the telephone companies are leveraging Aadhaar as a means to actually validate who you are who they say you are and that's because the telephone companies are now starting to offer payment services yeah, yes and that's where you see this sort of leap stage in innovation where payments is not being conducted by banks anymore it's being done by finance like by by the um by, by the yeah and then so taking that next natural step from Aadhaar, the other thing that was interesting is when they announced the Aadhaar act in 2016 they also launched the unified payments interface, which was effectively a suite of APIs that the government delivered into Aadhaar. Mm-hmm. And just a couple of weeks ago, WhatsApp and it was WhatsApp and Wepa- WeChat have just switched on uh, payments in India, leveraging Aadhaar and UPI. And you can imagine how quickly they'll be testing those services to then deploy that into other markets. You know very very quickly switching that sort of capability on and testing it with a market of 600 million people is for mobile payments and you know given that in that particular geography like that's in some cases the only way in which people can access financial services due to either um, you know the geography or the um, access to other types of banking infrastructure it's extremely powerful and it's what you're increasing like you know it's, it's the story of kenya um, it's the story increasingly in Indonesia and in and in Thailand, uh, where mobile is actually driving banking infrastructure, not the other way around.
0: So, so just to round up, I've got a up, I've got a few friends in Singapore mm. with fintech, and, and it seems to be much very conducive environment. Yes. So, so what what is your view as an advocate for Australian people mm. to to tell somebody to change their minds between starting here and Singapore?
1: Uh, Look, I've been to Singapore a few times, um, and in fact, I'll be speaking there for a few events uh, during, not at the festival, but during the Singapore FinTech Festival week. And actually, one thing that people don't actually realize is there's a lot of complementarity between the two ecosystems. Um, So I would say the the benefits from Singapore is the fact that it is a tax haven. Uh, You know, the tax rates they have there are crazy, but it's a market of three million. And you're not going to get very far in terms of acquiring talent with a market of three million. In fact, that is their biggest problem. And the fact that there are still, you know, there's a lot of native Singaporeans are very nationalistic. It's really hard for them to actually change the visa restrictions there to allow more people to come into the ecosystem. And when I speak to FinTechs in Singapore, um, a lot of them say, yes, it's super easy for us to get capital, um, super easy for us to save money on things like, you know, space and tax breaks and all that sort of stuff impossible for us to scale because we don't have access to the talent and when you think about like where you look at it, in a healthy ecosystem from a sort of five uh five critical factors capital availability um, infrastructure availability so the space in which you can create connections favorable policy environment um, access to customers so whether that's financial institutions or end consumers and the last one of course is access to talent so you have to have all five of those things developed in order to actually create a successful ecosystem. It
0: should be without boundaries, right? So they've got access to cheap labour and highly educated in Indonesia and Malaysia. Mm. Um, we've See, uh, integrate that. Yes.
1: And technology to integrate that. With yeah, that. and that is what sort of Singapore is trying to do. Is actually trying to consolidate its position as the springboard for startups within the Asia within ASEAN. And that's what I meant in terms of the complementarity. You can start to see a trade corridor emerging between those nations throughout the ASEAN region via hubs like Singapore and Hong Kong. But when they're actually trying to then sort of westernize or localize in order to then go to the US or to the UK, Australia is that stepping stone in between because the regulatory environments here are actually probably more similar to the UK and to the US. Um, as opposed to now, Singapore is actually its regulations are actually harmonising with Australia's. Uh, so, you know, uh, I think MAS and ASIC were one of the very first to sign a cooperation agreement after the FCA. Um, but you know, there is so much potential opportunity, and notwithstanding the fact that we also have a fairly significant trade agreement in defence capability, which, by the way, turns into a very, very handy cybersecurity capability, which is also very necessary for the development of a healthy fintech ecosystem. Uh, the two go very nicely hand in hand, and I, you know the other thing that comes with that is space. But that's a that's a that's something else I'm excited about for another day. i have crap on for ages about the emergence of the the space industry in Adelaide, but anyway, space industry in Adelaide. I can bet you within six months Elon Musk is going to announce a Tesla manufacturing plant in Adelaide. You heard it here first. Anyway, total segue. Any other question? Has, yeah, go for it. Just one
0: for companies.
1: Yes. Um, are there any alternatives other
0: than, say, the big financial institutions? Because what tends to happen with those sort of startups is they'll get capitalised by large financial institutions. If the idea is really good, it may get wrapped up by them, yep. either squashed or shelved, yeah. and never spread to the community,
1: yeah.
0: um, where it could potentially benefit a lot of people rather yep. than just be a proprietary thing. Yep. Yep. Um, is there, anything, like, is there any regulation that's sort of
1: helping that or is there any alternatives for startups? Competition. Um, so I think you've touched on a really interesting area about the, be- about the different business models around corporate venture capital and internalization of corporate innovation. Um, so take, for example, the difference between a Westpac reinventure model. So reinventure, for example, example, uh, they're a venture capital firm specialized in FinTech. Fully, ex- or They're actually an externalized fund Um, So it's run by two completely independent partners, but the fund itself is seeded by Westpac with the investment committee, stacked with a mix of reInventure and Westpac executives. And it's actually been designed in that way, uh, very deliberately to counter some of those things you've just raised where the reInventure team is nurturing early stage opportunities through to a larger stage, but are still arm's length enough to tell Westpac when Westpac starts to get grabby, no, we're actually interested in the capital return of this. You can be a partner, or you can invest in a later stage, but for the beginnings of this journey, you leave this alone. This is ours mothballs. Now, of course, that's always gonna be very difficult to manage when you've got an investment partner and team that's quite of mixed. And, you know, so they spend a lot of their time managing the grabbiness of the Westpac group. Um, But, you know, contrast that with NAB Ventures, which is, you know, certainly very internalized and they do have those issues. Though, of course, both Rob and Melissa are, you know, very strong uh, advocates internally for, again, leaving the startup alone. Um, But yes, there are lots of other alternatives. I mean, I think in 2016 we had two dedicated fintech funds, VC funds, of which ReInventure was one. By now we have probably around about five or six, and uh, only two or three of those are corporate venture capital. The rest are all fully externalised funds. Uh, We're seeing that um, other VC firms like Airtree, Rampersand, completely independent. Uh, Right Click Capital, uh, Tankstream Ventures, they're all investing in fintech startups. Um, Same now with the maturity of the ecosystem where businesses are actually now starting to see like late series A to series B. Um, We're also seeing international funds investing in in local startups. So I talked about Sequoia, China. Uh, We're hearing that Excel is doing a lot of snooping in this area. I've been speaking to about three or four different funds from the UK and Singapore, uh, one recently from Japan. Um, And of course, the US. So, yes, there is very strong growth in venture capital. And this is the interesting thing generally, when Sequoia starts making investments in a market, the rest of the world picks up and notices. They're all like, what is it that these guys know that we haven't seen yet? And that's, you know, at the moment, the number of VCs I am meeting has gone from one every three months to probably about once a month. So, it's good, it's really good. It depends. So, um, VCs usually meet me and tell me they have a thesis. They tell me, or they try and articulate what sorts of companies or investments they're looking for. Um, I do tend to connect a lot of people. Um, So, when a company comes to me and says, hey, we're looking for investors, um, I will try and give them a little bit of guidance as to the types of investors they should probably try and talk to. A lot of them generally find their own way. Um, they find ways to meet because, you know, VCs at the end of the day are looking for deals. They'll visit, they'll see pretty much anyone so long as they're at the right stage. Um, but if a company comes to me and says, look, I want to connect to this particular fund, um, usually so long as, you know, they're not at that stage where they're like, we're very, very basic idea and don't really have an idea yet. Uh, if they've got a fort, like a good business proposition and an investor deck, I'm usually more than happy to connect them. So yes, I do. Um, And again, from my perspective, it's all about how we build an effective ecosystem. And for me, uh, the metrics that we're measured by are things like the VC investments that are completed. And there's actually been probably around about six or seven deals in the last few months that I've been sort of one of the initial brokers. So that's working. Um, But apart from your question about VC funds, then yes, equity crowdfunding. So public company legislation coming online at the moment, Lots of. Uh, crowdfunding intermediaries is now starting to get their licences, so that will probably formally start in late October, early November. Um, and the private company then, probably about six months later. Um, and then of course there's the interesting ICO arena, but I can tell you right now, when it comes to ICOs, get legal advice, that thing is a minefield. Um, even Power Ledger are finding, actually, that whilst they've ticked pretty much all of the other things, and they had really great advice from, uh, from a, law, a top-tier law firm, um, since the ASIC guidance, they found that they are actually running into potentially falling afoul of the, um, the market's license regime, which, you know, that sucks, but at the same time now they've got the money to pay for the license they need. So you know, take some and lose some. Any other questions? Thank you. Thank you. Great questions.
0: Explore the Florence Guild podcast with the best talent from Australia and across the world. You can subscribe and rate this podcast on iTunes. For more information on Florence Guild, visit FlorenceGuild.com.